Hi, welcome to Tabs Two Cents, a show where we talk about finance, business, and achieving success. Today on the show, we have Ben Hammond. Ben is a returning guest. He has a master's in political economics, and he works in the financial industry. We're going to talk about Russia and Ukraine today, the tragic events that are unfolding there. Thoughts and prayers with the Ukrainian people, with Russian soldiers that don't know why they're there or what happened and all of the lives lost in this war. But we need to talk about this for our own perspective and politics matter with investing. So I think it's important to go over some of the history of why Russia is invading Ukraine and what might happen in the future. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show for average Joe investors where we talk finance and how to achieve success. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, buddy. Good to be back. Yeah, for sure. So I wanted to talk to you about the Russian-Ukrainian crisis. Obviously, this is a humanitarian crisis first and, you know, thoughts and prayers with the Ukrainian people. But I wanted to just kind of go over that with you because you study a lot of politics. And I wanted to ask you some questions on where this crisis is going to go, where you think it's going to go, because it it really is important to the rest of the world to have some insight on this. And I guess we'll start with just the question everyone wants to know and what's Putin's motives? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting situation. A lot of people are saying he's trying to put back together the old Soviet Union. And I don't think that that's necessarily incorrect. But on the surface, the concerns that he is going to probably bring up with this are security concerns. He doesn't like that NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which was set up to counter Soviet expansion after World War II. He doesn't like that a lot of the countries that were part of the former Soviet Union, that were part of the former Warsaw Pact, which was their version of NATO, have realigned themselves to the West and have military pact with the United States and with Western Europe. And he, on the surface, is saying this publicly, what he's trying to broadcast is that, listen, we, we are concern for our safety. We're concerned for our security because Western Europe and the United States are arming on our border. Yeah. And initially what he said was he wanted to demilitarize the country and replace the government with a government that's friendly to Russia. The neo-Nazi fascist government in Ukraine, I think, is is what he's using internally because he's got a propaganda war that he's really waging at home, too. And, and he's been building this ever since about eight years ago when the Ukrainians essentially overthrew or threw out their Russian-leaning president, essentially said that they that they wanted to lean west towards Europe or indicated that they wanted to lean west towards Europe. And, and that's, of course, when Russia annexed Crimea and supported the separatists in the, in the east near Russia there. So yeah, I mean, he has been waging a propaganda war ever since essentially saying that ethnic Russians are being brutalized there, there's threats of genocide, and that the leadership there is essentially neo-Nazi fascist government. I mean, lots of people have been saying that the war hasn't been going the way he thought. Although there have been reports that Ukrainians found some documents that said Putin had thought this war would last 18 days. But now they're saying that they'll have a ceasefire if they change the constitution to enshrine neutrality, acknowledge Crimea as Russian, and recognize the Donetsk and Lugansk as independent states. So how do you think Putin is viewing this now? He's putting offers on the table that he knows that they won't succeed to. They're really empty offers. So first of all, the idea of enshrining Ukrainian neutrality. I mean, Ukraine has heavily wanted to lean west towards the European Union. In fact, they were essentially on, on their way there back in 2015 when they essentially overthrew their president. 
they were about to sign a free trade agreement with the European Union. And he did a U-turn literally weeks before they were going to sign the treaty. November 2013, Viktor Yankovic was their president. Yeah, they wanted to sign a treaty with the European Union. He turned at the last minute and switched, obviously under pressure from, from Russia and from Putin, and said, no, we're going to lean towards Russia. We're going to sign a, a new agreement with them. And they threw him out of power and, uh, and elected a new Western-leading government. They are very, very concerned about their safety and security, as are the rest of the countries that are former Soviet republics. But you're hearing a lot right now from the Balkan states like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. You're hearing a lot from Poland right now, where they're honestly concerned that once the Soviets are done with Ukraine, they're going to continue the expansion and try to get that block of former Soviet states sort of realigned back with Russia again. So it's no secret that Russia is trying to ensure that Ukraine will never join NATO. But I don't think think that that's realistic, even though they won't sign it up with NATO. And even though they, they're essentially, I don't think that they will be likely to let Ukraine in even to NATO in the, in the mid to long term, because they, they don't want to risk an armed conflict with Russia. So even though I think it's unlikely, it's just like Turkey. Turkey wanted to join the European Union for a long time, too, and they sort of strung them along. And uh, eventually they got sick of it and sick of trying and stopped essentially trying to reform their country and become more liberal, which is the, really what the European Union wanted them to do to come into the Union. But they felt like they'd never let them in, which may be true. But same with Ukraine. Maybe European Union, maybe European trading community. I don't think NATO I don't think that they'll risk it in the future. So it's, I, I think it's a bit of a moot point, really. But they won't take it off the table. They'll refuse to, absolutely, for the sake of Ukraine, for their president and for the country, because they want them to lean west, but they'll never take that off the table. And Ukraine definitely wants it. There's no doubt about it. They want to be part of NATO. They want to be part of the European Union. So that's one thing that Russia just will not stand for. And that's one thing that Ukraine wants. In terms of the amount of time that it's taking, it's, it's a big shocker, I think. I mean, I heard analysts saying before this, when uh, when they were arming on their border, they said if Russia wanted to, to invade Ukraine, they'd have tanks in the, in the streets of Kiev within 48 hours, that quick. And now we're talking about two weeks now, about 14 days, I think, uh, as of tomorrow. And they've captured one, maybe two cities. They haven't captured the sister city there of Kharkov. They haven't captured Ukraine. They've actually been pushed back a little bit from Kiev. And you can almost see the desperation as uh, as things go to try to push the war forward because they've went from, I think, what were initially fairly targeted actions to essentially shelling cities and unapologetically shelling cities and not really caring what the, what people say. I mean, we see it in the West, obviously, with with Western newscasts and stuff like that. But in Russia, it's being very heavily controlled. They're, they're news agencies and stuff like that. They've had a crackdown on their news, uh, news agencies that is almost unprecedented in Russia. And that is saying something, considering how much they've cracked down on the news ever since really Putin has been in power. I mean, they've had situations where reporters have been arrested, assassinated, threatened, uh, essentially pushed out of the country. They've really had a centralization of Russian media and stuff like that. It's highly controlled by the state. The, the two biggest broadcasters are state media broadcasters, which isn't necessarily unusual in different countries, but theirs is very much controlled. And it's gotten to the point where they would, where any sort of reporting on this special operation, like they're calling it in Russia, is super controlled. I mean, it's a huge publicity thing for him. So he's not showing the fact that they're shelling, and I have no doubt about it, that they're shelling cities and stuff like that. But obviously, we see it on our media. So 
I think that he is getting a little bit more desperate and, and really pushing the troops to say, like, listen, take these cities by any means necessary as long as it's quick. Yeah, and I've seen reports where they've noted that U.S. has intelligence that Russia is using non-accurate missiles or whatever the term is for basically dropping bombs out of the sky and not caring where they land. And that's obviously an escalation from, you know, targeted cruise missiles to military bases or whatnot. And it's interesting that you mentioned that Putin is giving offers that he knows they'll refuse. And some people have said that, you know, perhaps a larger war has already started. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, my big, biggest concern, and we were sort of talking about this before we started recording, is that this is breaking with a set of international norms that have been in place since the end of World War II. Like, as much as people uh, call the United Nations relatively toothless, the idea of one sovereign country invading a, another sovereign country has been relatively rare since then. So most of the conflicts that we see are internal conflicts. They're essentially civil wars. If you go right after World War II, I mean, the first major conflict that the, that you see on the international scene where they're actually fighting a proxy war is Korea, North and South Korea, where the, the, the Russians actually boycotted the Security Council vote and the Americans were able to push through a United Nations military action so that they could go in and fight on the side of the South and try to stabilize the country. And eventually China ended up getting involved and, and eventually they had an armistice and they're actually still in the middle of a civil war to this day. They're just in an armistice, essentially a Cold War with a demilitarized zone on the border. But that's one case. Vietnam. Another one, essentially an eternal conflict, north and south, where the other, with, where the bigger parties take sides. There are conflicts that have taken place in countries where, where they haven't been proxy wars, like Rwanda, for example, the Congo right now. Like some of these different fights, obviously brutal, brutal wars, but it's not one country invading another sovereign country. Even if there's incursions on the border and stuff like that, it's not one country declaring war on another country, trying to take territory and annex it and stuff like that. This is different. This is kind of a little bit scary. Why it's got a lot of the Western countries and politicians and systems a little bit shook. I think is that when they annexed Crimea, that was that was a pretty big deal. But I mean, Crimea was only formally part of Ukraine since about 1954. Before that, it was a Russian territory. Ukraine wasn't even really an independent country until maybe after World War One. Maybe for a little bit, it was it was mostly under the control of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, split maybe with Russia. And after World War I, and specifically after the Russian Revolution, there was a war of independence in Ukraine. And then essentially what happened is that the Bolsheviks within Ukraine ended up going in and, and fighting a civil war and becoming part of the Soviet Union. So, I mean, even if they did have brief statehood there, they, they joined the Soviet Union. They were actually the very first state to join in that union of states in that Soviet Union, I believe. And when Stalin died, Khrushchev, who took over, is actually the, the head of the Ukrainian Soviet Party, the Ukrainian Soviet Union. And that's when Russia gifted Crimea to their territory. And essentially part of the Soviet Union all the way up until the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then that's when they really formed that statehood. Now, they that doesn't mean that they weren't forging their own ethnic identity throughout those times. And they've been in a yeah, territory that's constantly been sort of molded by geopolitical forces around them. They, when, you, when the Khans came through there in the Golden Horde, they, they, they were conquered there. Before that, they were, they were strongly Slavic. Poland came in and had them part of their Polish empire for a while. 
Russia came in and, and sort of divided that with the Polish Empire. Crimea was actually part of a their own little Canaanite, or I forget what they call it, but essentially a Tartar population, but you part, part of the former Golden Horde that lasted for quite a while there. And like I said, all the way up to present day, really, they, they, it's a relatively new state if you talk about like a nation state with borders, and they have a strong lean toward ethnic Russian from their past, especially in the East. So that's something that Putin's also using in some of his propaganda at home, saying like, listen, their state is a fabrication. Essentially, what a lot of Arabs will say about is Israel, like they don't need, they're saying that they don't have a right to statehood. They're a fabrication. They, they, they're not a, a legit state. But the rest of the world definitely sees them as a legit state. I think in international law, they're seen as a legit state. And what the, the Russians are doing by invading is definitely, no doubt about it, in breach of international law. I think the West has made a lot of mistakes on this one in terms of how they played their hand when it, it comes to power politics and telegraphing what you may or may not do. But one thing that they did really well, I think, was to poke holes in the idea that this Russian invasion could in any way be legitimate as a form of defense of someone. So they poked holes in the fact that, they, that there was genocide going on. They poked holes in the fact that Ukraine could be attacking Russia. They poked holes in the in the fact that they need to come in and defend a certain portion of the population because they telegraphed this is exactly what Russia is going to do. They called it the false flag situation. And they telegraphed it for about a month before they actually went ahead and did it. So it, it took all legitimacy, all the all the pretense of legitimacy and in international law away from Putin. He, he really like it's an aggressive action of one country trying to annex another country. And whether he goes ahead and actually claims the territory, which he's threatening to do now. At first, he was just saying, okay, well, it's just regime change. We're just trying to protect our ethnic Russians in the, in the country. We want guarantees of their safety. We want guarantees of our own security. Now he's saying if they don't guarantee their neutrality and that they'll never join NATO, he's going to erase them as a state. He's going to absorb them into Russia. So there's no doubt about it. I mean, this is, a, this is nothing but a land grab. They, unfortunately, I mean, the, the West is guilty of doing things like this in the past, too. I mean, Iraq, 2003, there was really no good reason for the United States to go into Iraq. If you want to talk about false flag, that's a that's a perfect false flag. If, they, if they're calling it on the Russians, they're calling it on the Russians because they do it themselves. They're saying they have weapons of mass destruction. They're working on biological weapons, all this stuff. They go in, there's nothing. There's nothing like that. It's one sovereign country invading another sovereign country. There was no imminent threat to the United States from Iraq at that point. Did, did they like them? No, they didn't, but they weren't about to attack them. At least with Afghanistan, you can make the argument that they were harboring the Al-Qaeda and the, the leadership of Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, and that they had essentially declared war and, and attacked them in an act of war with 9-11. I mean, at least you can make that argument, and it's a plausible argument. Okay, we gave the Taliban an ultimatum. Don't harbor Al-Qaeda. Allow us to arrest the people that were responsible or attack the people that were responsible because it is a, a declaration of war from, a, from an organization. Taliban refused and they said, well, unfortunately, we're going to have to invade. And, that, and that's exactly what they did. At least that's a plausible reason that you can give in international law for, for the invasion of another country for self-defense. You can make that argument. I don't think you could in Iraq and you definitely can't do it in U Ukraine. 
Yeah. And it's interesting that all the sanctions that they're putting on Russia are actually pretty severe. And, you know, the Russian economy is going to be hit really hard from this. And you would think that Putin will lose some popularity in his country from this invasion. So I really just do wonder where his head's at, because I've seen some, you know, just headline news that Russian officials are saying that the U.S. has declared economic war on Russia, even if it's not a actual, you know, gun versus gun physical war. I would say that's accurate. I mean, in politics, there's this model of soft power versus hard power. Hard power is really like the realist, like the military power. That's what Putin is really showcasing, that dominant real power. And you can tell it in, in, in the way that he's talking to the West right now, too. Like when he's talking, when NATO's mulling over the idea of creating a, a no-fly zone over Ukraine, he's saying, well, if you do that, you're going to see military consequences, the likes of which you've never seen. Of course, he's without saying it, he's alluding to nuclear weapons. When Finland and Sweden suddenly decide that maybe they want to join NATO because they're concerned about Russian expansionism, and especially Finland, they have a history with Russia. Very similar, you know, not quite the same as Ukraine, but similar to a lot of those eastern-facing countries where, where they fought wars against each other, multiple wars. The Finns, I believe, actually fought on the side of the Nazis, not because they were aligned with the Nazis and their fascist beliefs, but because they didn't like Russia. They were concerned with Russia. So when a country like Finland or Sweden says that we're thinking of joining NATO and Russia comes out or Putin comes out and says, if you do, there will be severe consequences. I can't promise that there won't be military consequences. He's, he's flexing his hard power muscle. He's, he's essentially alluding to the fact that he's willing to go to war. He's willing to fight. And if necessary, he's willing to use nuclear weapons, even if he's not willing to. And I, God, I hope he's not willing to. But even if he's not willing to, he's trying to telegraph the fact that he is willing to, to, to dissuade anybody from getting in his business. The West, unfortunately, they really avoid using or have been avoiding using hard power sort of statements in this, encountering it with hard power. But what they're really willing to do in telegraph is use their soft power. So the soft power is the technology warfare that they're using propaganda warfare where they've essentially smeared Russia even before they did this, sort of called them out for what they were planning on doing, created a complete situation where Russia has no legitimate right to go in here and smeared them for it and said, you're going to do this and, you, and, and it's against international law and you have no right to do this. And we know you're going to do this and this is how you're going to do this. And they called them out, called the bluff and really backed them into a corner that way, which was smart. And then they're using their economic power. So they are obviously sanctioning and isolating economically and cutting them off from the economic system, which is hard for a lot of Western countries, but it really does obviously hurt Russians a lot more. And some countries are hurt a lot worse than this than others. I mean, countries like Germany, Poland and Italy, they're dependent on Russia to, to heat their homes and to, and to run their power plants and stuff like that. The amount of natural gas and oil that they purchase from Russia is huge. In fact, Russia's even threatening to use that as a soft weapon. They canceled the Nord 2 pipeline expansion, but the Nord 1 pipeline is still feeding Germany with natural gas, and they're threatening to cut that off completely. And they, they, they were arguing that they were even intentionally withholding gas to spike up European gas prices even before this over the fact that they were sanctioned before this even happened over what they would do annexing uh, Crimea. So yeah, the United States and the West, they're really keen to use that soft power. Unfortunately, they don't even telegraph the fact that they would be willing to use the hard power, which I think was a big mistake and continues to be a big mistake. Even if you're not willing to go to war with another country, it's important both to your allies and to the country involved that you back it up and say like, listen, we're not taking anything off the table. 
If you're going to bomb children's hospitals, which incidentally happened today, apparently it's hard to it's hard to trust media coming out of the situation because everything it can be skewed and man- manipulated. But apparently Russia bombed the children's hospital today. So you're telling me in situations like that, there's zero chance that you will reprimand them militarily. That's essentially what they're saying. They're saying that there is no chance that we'll go to war with Russia. Now, that's bad for Ukraine. But what happens when it's Poland that they're invading? Now, Poland's a NATO country, and we've got treaty obligations. Treaty 5 of the NATO treaty attacking against one will bring every other member into the war. But are you willing to risk nuclear war if Putin invades Poland? Because that's what Putin would be asking himself, right? So far in Ukraine, you won't even put in no-fly zone. You won't put boots on the ground. You won't even telegraph that you might do this. You've, you've straight up said there's no way that we're going to war with you because it means World War Three, which I don't think is necessarily accurate either. But they've straight up telegraphed, no, there's no way we're going to war with Russia. I don't think that that's the right messaging. I don't like the idea of war. I think this has got to end as quickly as possible. I do, and I feel absolutely terrible for the people of Ukraine, what's going on there. And I feel bad for the Russian soldiers, too. A lot of them are just kids that are getting set in there. They thought they were on exercises on the Ukrainian border, and suddenly they're invading Ukraine and shelling cities. So I feel bad for the whole situation. But I don't think as a politician, when you're dealing with a, a power politician like Putin, you can ever take take anything off the table. You know, you, you you really shouldn't. It would be like telling Kim Jong-un in North Korea, well, we support South Korea economically and we support them socially. And if you launch missiles against South Korea, there will be severe consequences, but we will not do anything militarily. Suddenly, the risk to Kim Jong-un and North Korea invading South Korea goes way down for them. If they don't have to worry about any military response, they just got to worry about economics, then they can do a cost analysis in their head and figure out what is South Korea worth to us. We're not going to get annihilated. We may be hobbled economically, but we're not going to get annihilated. Well, North Korea is already hobbled economically. So, I mean, what's to lose? What about a China and a Taiwan? The United States has a military treaty with Taiwan, but are they willing to go to war over Taiwan with China, with the largest standing army in the world with a nuclear power? So far, if I'm Xi Jinping, I'm saying probably not. I'm looking at this conflict and I'm saying, okay, what's the cost to us if we go in and take Taiwan? What is Taiwan worth to us? If they sanction us, are we okay with that? Yeah, it's going to hobble our economy. We're going to get a black eye on the world stage in in terms of how we look. We may not look like the good guy, but could we make a persuasive argument for going into Taiwan? Could we engineer a situation where we could try to come out of this with a little bit of legitimacy and go in and take Taiwan? And if they're not going to fight for it, if if we're not realistically risking a war with the United States, then suddenly the risk of them going into Taiwan goes way down, right? Is Xi Jinping willing to take sanctions? I mean, they'll they'll bear it better than Russia does, probably. And it'll hurt the West a lot more to sanction China than it hurts Russia as well. So the sanctions may not even be as harsh. So what are you saying to strong men like that when you're saying we're not willing to go to war? I mean, they tried that with Hitler during World War II, and it didn't end up so well, right? I can't say that that's the same situation now, but uh, what I am saying is that if I am a politician and I am trying to promote our brand, and our brand is liberty and freedom and democracy, and I'm promoting it, but I'm not willing to stand up to people who are invading the democratic countries and won't even say, we won't even put it on the table. We'll say, no, there's absolutely no way that we're going to put boots on the ground. There's absolutely no way. It would be in World War Three. There's no way. 
Well, all you're telling the other person, the, the strong man, is that they're free to go in and invade, and, and maybe they're going to have a hobbled economy for a while, but that might be a price they're willing to pay. So I think that's a huge mistake in terms of what the West's doing, and, the, and their allies see it. I mean, they, you, like I said, if I'm Taiwan, I'm pretty concerned. If I'm South Korea, I might be concerned. If I'm, if I'm part of that Eastern Bloc, a former Soviet country, so I'm probably concerned as well. Yeah, and there has been some talk of Finland and Sweden joining NATO. And from what I understand, if they apply, they'll get in. They meet the criteria. Whereas oh, yeah. Ukraine, it was a country that they didn't meet the criteria. So what I've heard is they weren't going to let them in before this. So they're not going to rush into letting them in now. But I mean, most of these countries don't meet the criteria. Nobody really keeps up with the spending requirements other than the United States and maybe one or two other countries. Most of these countries don't meet the criteria, yet they still let them in because geopolitically, what they're saying is we're, we're realigning them with the West, with Europe, which, which I think is probably a good thing. Putin brought up a, an interview that he had with, I think it might have been Bill Clinton, sat down and he asked, like, hey, if Russia wants to join NATO, what are the chances that that's something that would be considered? And he said he just got awkward silence, right? Now, does Russia meet the criteria even then? Probably not, right? Like I said, like the, the whole idea of this is, is liberal Western democracies with certain fundamental freedoms enshrined. But it really is like, a, like they're drawing a line in the sand. And unfortunately, like I said, like when we telegraph that we're not willing to fight under any condition, all we're telling the other people is that they've got a pass to go in and it's going to cost an economic price. But I mean, they, they can do the math on that, right? I said that I didn't think that this would lead to World War III necessarily. Definitely couldn't. You don't want to risk that. But I mean, we fought proxy wars against Russia in the past and proxy wars really against China in the past, too. Like China stepped in in, uh, in North Korea and arguably Vietnam as well. So we fought proxy wars with those countries in the past. We're fighting one right now in Syria, right? Arguably, Ukraine was a proxy war before it became a, a full-on invasion from Russia. I mean, in the East, it was a proxy war for sure. We fought proxy wars with them in the past. Have we had a situation where Russian troops and American troops or Russian troops and Western European troops have, have been shooting at each other and, and killing each other? Not intentionally, but we've had situations where NATO armaments have shot down Russian jets. I, I know in Syria that happened. Would it necessarily lead to nuclear war? No, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it has to. I think if the United States and, and, and Western Europe or if NATO decided to come in and support Zelensky and outlined and really telegraphed internationally what their objectives were, we're not going into Russia. We are not going to attack targets within Russia. But if anything is in Ukraine and it's a situation where there's a no-fly zone or whatever, anything in Ukraine is fair game. I don't think that brings about a nu nuclear war. I don't think that the, that Russia starts launching nukes against the West. I could be wrong, but I think that they would telegraph it if they did. You know, if, if it was heading that way, I think that there would be, it would represent an escalation absolutely. I don't think it has to end a nuclear war, and I don't think it would, would even be likely under those circumstances to head to nuclear war. You got to worry about the stability of, of, of someone like Putin in a, in a state where it's so centralized that really it like he's he's an ex extreme version of a, of a dictator right like he really power is so centralized in that country i mean you can tell by their meetings that they have he's sitting 30 feet away from these guys he's at one end of the table and his generals and stuff are all huddled down at the other i mean he's as close to an absolute monarch as you could probably get in that area so you've got to worry about somebody who has that much power to make irrational choices and stuff like that. But I don't think that that necessarily leads to nuclear war. And I think it's probably unlikely to lead to nuclear war. But it is scary when you're talking about an actual war between Western countries and Russia, for example, or Western countries and China. Same thing. 
But I mean, they've been drawing these lines in the sand for a while now. It's no doubt that you know, the, there's no doubt about it that Western Europe and the United States is standing on one side of the fence and Russia and China are standing on the other. I mean, they've outlined each other as antagonists and protagonists on, on the opposite sides of the fence, even though the economies are really intertwined and stuff like that militarily. There's a lot of concern about them. So anyway, I think that we could have done a better job and could be doing a better job with Ukraine militarily. What's the difference between sending in weapons and sending in troops? And I mean, they, they could even do what Russia's done. So when Russia took over Crimea and when Donetsk and Luhansk in the, in the east essentially rebelled and, and, and started a civil war, they weren't doing that by themselves. There were Russian regular troops in there and they denied it at the time. But it was obvious there was Russian equipment, there was Russian troops, Russian anti-aircraft artillery operated by Russians shot down a Dutch airliner over the end and it was black and white. It was completely obvious that it was Russian regular troops in the country. And you know what Putin did? He denied it. He said, no, they're not Russian troops. We're not, we're not at war in this country. Oh, you, you found Russians in there with Russian uniforms. You can prove they're Russian. Oh, they're volunteers. They're volunteers in the country. There's no reason why if the West wanted to be a little bit covert about it, they, they couldn't do something like that. I mean, we've already got a stream of Western volunteers going into the country from all over Europe and the United States. But I mean, if they put regular forces in there and played played what Putin does, I mean, this is real politics. This is a this is real politics. Hard power. It's what in political theory you'd call realist politics, and it's power politics. And so you do whatever you need to do to gain the upper hand against the op- opponent, and you assume that they're going to do whatever they need to do to do, do the same thing to you. Now, the problem with deciding that you're going to be more liberal and not going to have that realist political theory, that's fine. We don't want to live in a realist political system. That's sort of like a uh, Machiavellian system. It's very scary. Machiavelli is like one of the fathers of, of realist political theory. And it's sketchy. It's essentially lie if you can get away with it. Stab whoever in the back who you need to. Do whatever you need to do to rise to the top. Because if you don't, the other guy will. And essentially, it's a race to the bottom for everybody. And liberal thinkers think like, no, it's better that, that we cooperate and stuff like that. It's only by cooperation that we really uh, are going to be successful and stuff like that race to the top. And some people think may think that that's naive, but that's how our Western system, political systems, for the most part, try to work. The only problem is if you've got a real politic guy and the other people decide that they're not going to play that game, well, he's going to walk all over them, right? He's willing to do whatever he needs to do, whatever he can get away with. He's doing the calculus in his head, and he's going to do whatever he needs to do to achieve his goals. And he doesn't care who he pisses off in the, in the meantime, as long as he can achieve his goals. He'll lie about it if he needs to. He'll cheat. He'll bend the rules. He'll break the rules. As long as he feels like he can get away with it, he'll do it. So realistically, we should probably be playing the same game or at least assuming that that's how he's going to operate and be trying to counter him. Even if we're not going to commit troops to the battle, we should never be taking that off the table publicly. You know, we should never be telegraphing that we in no circumstances will make a decision. We should always be saying there's nothing that isn't on the table for us right now. And that's a huge mistake, in my opinion, that they, that the West has been making. And obviously, they've been very, very clear about what they've intended to do economically, right from the beginning, what the economic consequences are. But you should never take anything off the table when you're dealing with, with a real politic guy, which is exactly what Putin is. He's a strong man. He's a, he's a realist. And, and he's power hungry. And there's a reason why he's at the top. He's, there's a reason why he's been so successful. 
Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I had the same thought that I'm not really sure what the line is when they say, yeah, we're donating all these anti-tank weapons and Zelensky's called out to the world for fighters to volunteer and and come over and they'll give them guns. So the West is going to provide weapons and then people are going to volunteer and they're going to take those Western weapons and go and fight Russians. But, you know, the U.S. is being very clear that they're not putting troops on the ground, but maybe they are playing those games and they're just saying that as a guys when really they're volunteering their own troops. Well, if they are playing that game, I don't think they're playing it well enough. They should have anti-aircraft weaponry in there, which which they're bringing in and stuff like that. I mean, when the Americans were funding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Russians, which was a very similar conflict, actually. They were bringing things like Stinger missiles and stuff like that to shoot down Russian aircraft. But in this day and age, I mean, they should be operating drones and stuff like that. I mean, they, they, the Ukrainians, they, you, you, at least from social media. And, and like I said, like this is the tricky thing. Like you look at you look at like the, the conventional news sources and you get your media from there. But you see a lot more coming through on social media and both are biased. But at least you would think that the conventional media would try to act with a certain amount within a certain amount of rules or integrity. But from from what you see on social media, a lot of these troop transports, a lot of the armored vehicles and stuff like that, armored troop carriers, they seem to be getting picked off and they're not yet they're definitely getting picked off by things like RPGs and anti-artillery like uh, handheld missiles and stuff like that that the ground troops are using, but there's a ton of footage online that appears to show the Ukrainian army plugging them with drones. They're saying that they're Turkish-made drones, but I mean, that changed the, the whole dynamic of warfare. Like Russia, there's no doubt they should, they, should, they should have absolute air superiority in that country. But if you can buy 20 drones for the cost of one jet, then you could, in theory, lose 20 drones to one jet. And, you're, and, you, and economically, you're, you're breaking even with them. And if you can create drones or build drones quicker than you can build a jet, then you're actually doing better. You're, you're, you're in a war of attrition. You're going to do much better. And then the other side of that is when you shoot down an airplane, there's a pilot in it, maybe two, maybe two air crew. In a bomber, there's small multiple air crew. So now you're losing that skill set, right? How many people do you know that can fly a fighter aircraft? I mean, it's a, it's a relatively specific skill set that, that takes a high degree of training. If you shoot down a drone, the drone pilot goes over to the next joystick and he's back up in the air in 10 minutes, you know? So the use of drones in this fight is really, really interesting in the end and really, really interesting for the future of warfare because it really does level the playing field for a country that should have a big deficit when it comes to their ability to, to win the air war. And the air war is everything right now. If you look at World War One and World War Two, I mean, obviously on the ground, tanks were really important. What it looks to me like, like in this war, and obviously any war that the Americans have fought since maybe uh, maybe the early 1990s, since Desert Storm, is that air power and air superiority is where it's at. If you can hit people with cruise missiles and fighter jets with with air to ground missiles, and you can claim air superiority. It doesn't matter how many troops are on the ground. You don't stand a chance. You can have the largest standing army on the world. And I think Russia's number two in the world for standing army. And you can get annihilated by a military that really shouldn't be in the same class as you, but they can punch you above their weight class if they can avoid you getting air superiority and if they can keep jets in the air. And it doesn't have to be jets. It can be drones. As long as you've got that bird's eye view with the ability to knock other aircraft out of the air or knock armored uh, personnel carriers and tanks and stuff like that out, it's a huge leveling impact. And like I said, you're, you're, you're not risking any of your talent when you're operating those. 
I think that if this war lasts at all, that's going to be a huge factor in any sort of success that Ukraine might have is the ability to challenge Russian air superiority through unconventional methods. Yeah, it's a really good point that if they have a couple good drone pilots and the West keeps feeding them new drones, they don't really need armies of pilots. They just need a couple good drone pilots and a good bunker. And I think it's interesting that you brought up the soft power because... What I've noticed is that the West's intelligence really has been dominant from what I can see in this. They said, oh yeah, Russia's going to invade in 24 hours. And then there's the Kremlin saying, no, no, we're not going to invade. We promise. (laughs) And then next thing you know, right on cue, they're invading and they've called it every step of the way. And I have to imagine that the US and Western intelligence is feeding Ukraine all of these coordinates and all these places like direct line, send your drone here, hit this target and fly away. And that's probably why they're doing so well. Yeah, very well could be, right? Like, again, you've got the ability to help Ukraine out in maybe unconventional methods, right? And you know, if you're the United States, I still don't like the idea that, they, that they're telegraphing that they will not, under any circumstances, go in militarily. I think it's a terrible move. I think it's a terrible move against a guy like Putin. And I don't think it would be a particularly good move against a guy like uh, Xi Jinping. Like, they, the thing that both of these guys have in common, they're like a Charles de Gaulle in France. Maybe even like a Margaret Thatcher in Britain. I mean, you, you every once in a while you get one of these generational leaders that just seem to exude confidence and control the country and, and are unbelievably popular to their own people, even if they're mediocre leaders, as long as they exude confidence and they and, and exude power and stuff like that, their people will follow them and they and, and that bolsters their ability to do things like fight wars. I am really concerned that the West is so fragmented. And you see it not just from country to country, but you see it within countries as well. And a lot of these countries that have this alternate model where they're a lot more centralized, like Russia, and a lot more controlled, like Russia, like China, where they don't really care so much for human rights as they do for, for maintaining the power structure and the hierarchy and maintaining their control. They are not only going to be fairly effective and very brave to do things that the West should be standing up for, and they end up essentially bullying smaller countries like like Taiwan for all intents and purposes, its own country. China says no, Taiwan says yes, but 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 realistically, they're governed by their own government. They operate as their own government. They they state that they're free. Arguably, Hong Kong was like that too. I mean, Hong Kong was under a 300-year British lease which came about over brutal terms and stuff like that, opium wars and stuff like that, and and the age of colonies and stuff like that, just terrible stuff. But I mean, in all intents and purposes, Hong Kong was a self-governing entity, and the lease ended in slowly because China doesn't have to worry that they're invading a foreign country because it is part of their territory. Slowly, they've been sort of taking control and nationalizing Hong Kong and then really taking away like a unique country. And they really don't have any say against it aside from protesting. Taiwan arguably does because they are recognized as a separate country for, for most intents and purposes. But political leader like Xi Jinping, a realist, is going to be, like I said, weighing the, the pros and cons, weighing the, the, the benefits and costs of operating militarily. And I mean, they've been acting provocative in that South China Sea ever since he's been in power, expanding their military control over the region. There's a ton of disputed islands, which a ton of different countries around there, like Indonesia, Japan, Korea, they all claim as their own. And China's essentially saying, well, these are, these are in our territorial waters and they're taking them over. And they're able to do it without 
any sort of resistance. The biggest resistance they get is the is the Americans will uh, will sail a, a carrier, a destroyer, whatever, through the South China Sea through what they call international waters, which China calls their territory. And then, of course, China launches jets and they, they and they escort them out and they and, and you know they they both saber saber rattle. But I mean, there's no doubt about it. If China thinks that they can go in and take Taiwan, and there's not going to be a significant cost to doing so, they'll do it in a second, in a heartbeat. Russia will too. And Putin Putin will too. If they think that they can expand out and start to build back the Soviet Union, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about that. If Putin wants to do that and he doesn't think that the West will react militarily, he'll do it. How much of this do you think is Putin's legacy? How much of this do you think he wants his legacy to be left as somebody who expanded Russia close to the previous Soviet Union? Big time, big time, huge. And yeah, I think it's a huge legacy project for him. I think if he's in power instead of Gorbachev, the Soviet Union doesn't break up. You know, he is an old school Soviet leader. There is no doubt about it and a strong one as well. And I think that there's no doubt about it that he's looking for legacy, that he is making sure that Russia and the like Russia proper is in a better, stronger geopolitical position than after he goes than before he took power. And in terms of pushing back territory that has been really uh, with all these countries leaning into NATO and stuff like that, I mean, that's an absolute threat to him. He hates that. These are all Warsaw Pact countries. They should be aligned to Russia. Yeah. And the last time you were on, we talked a lot about energy. We talked about renewables and how the world is still very reliant on oil. But transitioning to renewable energy, do you think Putin saw this as perhaps his last chance or as the world is moving towards a less vulnerable state for oil, maybe he saw this as his strongest moment? That's a, that's a great question. I don't think that that went into it as much as the fact that he's getting older and, and maybe the, the, the clock's running out for him. But there's no doubt about it. I mean, he is pulling that lever to use whatever control and power and leverage that they have over those countries. The fact that he can turn off the uh, the natural gas he wants to, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty significant weapon. The fact that they are shocking energy markets the way that they are is crazy. And it just shows it goes to show you how little distance we've come in terms of greening up these economies. I mean, Germany is supposed to be one of the greenest economies in the world, one of the greenest energy systems in the world. And I mean, they, they're absolutely crippled right now by the gas price. You know, Europe is supposed to be on the cutting edge of the green economy. And uh, and they're absolutely getting beaten up by the high energy prices. And it's as a direct result of Russia. And it was happening even before this conflict started. They were arguing that, that Russia was intentionally manipulating the flow of natural gas to the continent to spike up energy prices, stuff like that. Like I said, as a as a way of using soft power for them to complain, essentially, or, or push back against the sanctions that, a, that the West imposed because of Crimea. And there's no doubt about it. I mean, that's it. That is a great use of leverage for them. And there's other things, too. Like a lot of people don't know, like things like nickel. China is one of the best sources of nickel in the world. I think the top supplier of the highest quality of nickel in the world and they're used heavily 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 in uh in rechargeable batteries stuff like that and nickel prices have shot up ridiculously i think like 300 percent or something like that since this crimean war has begun and the sanctions took hold so i mean 
somebody in the United States, a, a politician, I can't remember who it was, called them essentially a big gas station and said, oh, what the, it's not the end of the world if we cut them off from the economy. But they are a producer of a, of a lot, lot of raw materials and raw inputs. And it is definitely causing a good, causing pain for the West that, that, that we're cutting them out of the market. Not as much as if we tried to cut China out of the market, but, but definitely, I mean, it just goes to show you how interconnected we are. And that's the reason why war is in theory supposed to be less common is because we are so interconnected that that if you go to war with another country, it really hurts yourself. I mean, I guess it depends on whether or not the person who's in, at the head of the country cares that it's hurting themselves. I'm not sure how much Putin is concerned that there's runs on the bank in Russia right now. He would be concerned if he was starting to lose support of the army and the police. But as long as he can maintain support of the army and police, I, I, don't, I don't think he really cares. Yeah, I think with renewable energy, something to note is that Germany is a leader, but a leader doesn't necessarily mean that it's that good yet. You know, it's like mm. however many percentage of their country is run on renewables isn't as high as people probably would think. And yeah, just on the bank runs, uh, last question for you. I know you're in the financial industry. So what do you think about the SWIFT boycott? And what do you think that's going to do to the Russian banking system? It's interesting because they talked a lot about that, but they only cut a handful of banks out of the SWIFT system. And the, and the reason for that is that Italy and Germany are still buying gas from, from Russia and they need a way to buy that. They need a way to pay their bills. If they cut them off of the SWIFT system, 100%, like if they cut all their banks off, it would cripple that country. Absolutely cripple. It would cripple their financial system. There's no doubt about it. I mean, even doing the work that they've done on it, the ruble devalued by about a fifth, essentially overnight. They had to jack up interest rates in Russia to about 20% to try to, to, to stabilize the price of the ruble. The, the Russian Central Bank has a ton of foreign reserves, but they're going to burn through them trying to prop up the ruble if, if that's what they want to do. If they cut off the flow of cash through the SWIFT code, yeah, that's a, that's a big move. You have heard a lot of publicity about it, but I think that it was softer than, uh, or less extreme than it sounded like. An extreme move would have been to cut their entire banking system off. They actually brought out an alternate system to SWIFT as well, probably in planning to, to give themselves a little bit more resilience, a, a Russian-made interbank system, but really very few institutions actually use it. I think uh, there's one or two banks in China, very few in Europe and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's not like it gives them an alternate system. There's, there's no doubt about it that the, that being attached to that SWIFT system or detached from it is a, is, is a big deal. But unfortunately, it, it, like I said, like that's the, the thing with sanctions. Anything that you, that you do as a nation, if you're sanctioning another country, if you do a lot of trade with that country, you're just hurting yourself. You're, you're really, it, it, it's a hard thing to do. And that's why there was a lot of pushback when they were even talking about the SWIFT system and cutting them off. From countries like the United States and the United States more, not necessarily for them, but for countries like Germany, Poland, Italy, that depend on them for their energy needs. I mean, you know, like I said, they, effectively, if you can't pay your gas bills, they won't pump gas into you. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if that there's gas in that pipeline or not. If, if you have no way of paying your bills, you're, you're, you're not getting the, the natural gas. So that's the situation that they're at right now. They're just so interconnected that if they were actually going to cut them off, which would be very impactful. Well, I mean, we're, we're, we're still, we're not in the middle of winter, but we're still in the winter here and people wouldn't be able 
able to heat their houses, you'd probably be looking at brownouts or blackouts in, in parts of Europe because they wouldn't have enough gas to, to, to run the, the energy grid. So I think it's a it's an interesting idea. I think that it has been impactful in certain situations, but but obviously the major financial institutions that Russia deals with still have access to the system. So I don't think it's been as extreme as maybe a, maybe they've been reporting it has been. Do you think that they can back Putin into a corner far enough with sanctions to create a larger war than actually sending troops across the border? No, I don't. I think that the only way that this could could work for the West, and this is what they're banking on. I mean, these sanctions aren't hurting Putin, and they're not hurting the oligarchs. The oligarchs lost a ton of value, don't get me wrong, but a billionaire is still a billionaire. I mean, they, they're not going hungry or anything like that. They, they've seized a handful of yachts. They probably have more yachts. I mean, they, they're not losing sleep over this stuff. They, they, they're not happy about it, but they don't have to worry about going hungry, you know, whereas regular Russians, they probably do have to worry about supplies. I mean, they, they, they probably are. I mean, we, we're talking about COVID and when things were starting to empty on the shelves. I mean, that's the way that it probably is starting to get in places in Russia. We've disrupted the supply chain going in and out. That means that you can't get certain items. The items that you can get are starting to get very, very expensive. That's the inflation effect. And so the reason why countries use sanctions on other countries, the whole idea is that they make things so uncomfortable for the population that they push back against the government and, and essentially either overthrow them or put them in a situation where their control over the country, the, the strongman's control over the country is so at risk that he has to change policy. But unfortunately, in order to do that, you, you, you cause the regular everyday people who, who really have no stake in this conflict, you, you cause suffering for them. And the ones that are going to suffer worse are the ones that are the most at risk, the, the, the ones that are most impoverished, the ones that don't have port systems, probably disproportionately women, probably disproportionately children. Those are the ones that the sanctions are really, really, really going to bite on. And that sucks. It's terrible. I think that Putin's popular base, popular support is so strong that unless this conflict really, really were to drag out, I don't think that he's that concerned. They've got people protesting in the street. He's still got an overwhelming port base there. Uh, his popularity rating is still higher than any Western leader, probably. I don't think that they, I, I don't think that he's going to be that concerned with sanctions. If the, if the, the war drags on, and things start to change, then maybe. But the longer the war drags on, the more the more Russians suffer, and the more that the the Ukrainians obviously suffer as well. Because obviously, any suffering that the Russians, the the poor Russians are are going through in terms of sanctions and stuff like that. Well, add the fact that you're in the middle of a war zone, and you've got what's going on with the the Ukrainians. So not only do they not have access to food and stuff like that, not all, not only do they have probably have huge inflation, not not because the country's printing money, but because there's no supply of goods. But you're also running out of clean water and electricity and stuff like that because your infrastructure is being blown to smithereens, and you have absolutely no hope that that's going to change anytime soon. Even if the war were to end tomorrow, how many years? is it going to take to rebuild what's already been destroyed in this war? I mean, they, they're going to be suffering for the, from this probably for decades. It's going to be a huge setback for that country, regardless of, of how things change. So it's unfortunate. And unfortunately, the longer it goes on, the worse it's going to get. And I think 
that it is probably, unless Russia can somehow get the upper hand in the conflict and, and start taking cities, I think it is at risk of becoming a protracted long-term conflict, sort of like the Vietnam with the United States or Afghanistan with the Russians when they went in there. This could be a protracted conflict. Even if they do take control, even if they do take control and topple the government, I think you're going to see enough popular resistance in that country that you probably are going to have like a the, like essentially militias and stuff like that that are that are actively fighting a guerrilla war there. And I mean that country is going to be hobbled for a long time, and I don't think that there's a there's any chance any chance that it's going to end anytime soon, unless the West were to get involved militarily. And of course, if you do that, you do nuclear war. But I don't see any other way to end the conflict quickly. Like I said, even if the Russians, even unfortunately, maybe best case scenario, a quick war where the Russians end up winning, because I don't think it's a quick war where the Ukrainians end up winning. Unfortunately, I would love to say that it is. But the Russian, the way they that they operate is they wear you down with numbers. I mean, it, it shouldn't be as surprising that they've had so little success over the over the first two two or so weeks of this war. And I think a lot of people were surprised myself and included that they that they have had so so little success. But I mean, this is sort of how the Russian army has always operated. They're inefficient. Their stuff breaks down. They're uncoordinated, especially initially. Eventually, they get better. The longer they stay in a conflict, the better that they get. But really, what what makes what sets Russia apart from any other country is their numbers. They just can keep on throwing people at it. If they, if they're willing to keep the conflict going, they, they can, they've essentially got an unlimited amount of people that they can continue to throw at it. And even if the Ukrainians unfortunately put up a hell of a fight and are and, and are really patriotic and, and really organized and, and a crack troop, eventually you're going to get worn down. Eventually your forces are going to get worn down. You're, you're, you're just going to run out of people. And I mean, that's another scenario that could play out with this with this one. If President Putin is really intent on on winning this war, and he doesn't mind that it, that it keeps on dragging on, I have no doubt that he'll just keep on throwing people into it, keep on throwing people into the meat grinder until they wear wear down the Ukrainian forces and they'll take over. I, I, I feel really bad that the Ukrainians are in the spot that they are in. And honestly, I don't see a way out aside from, from the West, a, a quick way out that, that, that you, Ukrainians end up in a good situation without the West intervening in them militarily, which sucks. I would think if I was, if, if I was going to call it, either the Russians will really start to take control in the next few weeks and start to topple cities and essentially will will take control of the country, or it's going to be a protracted conflict. And even if they do take cities, I think it's going to be a protracted conflict because I think you're going to you're going to have civilian uprisings. I think you're going to have guerrilla warfare and stuff like that. You're going to have a lot of resistance. You're going to have a lot of anger in that country. And either way, under any scenario, I think that that country is hobbled for, like I said, for decades. I, I can't imagine from the videos that I'm seeing of the city of the infrastructure and stuff like that. I can't imagine that that country won't be won't be economically and socially set back for a really long time. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I have to agree. I can't see this being a short battle. It really is a war of attrition with Russia. And they tend to just continue to send numbers in until people give up. And, you know, as far as sanctions and public uprising, it's it's pretty easy for Putin to just say, yeah, the West did this to us. Look at all the sanctions they put on us. And then he could grow popularity that way. And also, if there are some protesters or civil unrest, then he jails those people and all he's left with are his supporters. So 
I mean, it's going to be pretty hard to overthrow a guy like that, I think. And it's also going to be pretty hard to stop the Russian army. So we'll have to see where this goes. Doesn't seem like it's going to go anywhere good, but it's definitely something we need to keep an eye on, I think, for ourselves and, you know, for our families and everything. But with that being said, I want to say thanks for coming on and we'll have to keep an eye on it. And I'm sure there'll be more to talk about another day. Absolutely. Hopefully it ends quickly. But like I said, I, I don't think I'm very optimistic. All right. Thanks for coming on. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.